today's show, ex-pro racer Pat Jacks heads up another ADV Women's Rally. And by the way, she's got a great tool tip for picking up a heavily loaded bike. And is there an advantage to having to charge an electric bike? we got a lot to talk about today. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfield. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Carol DeVell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. to stand on a street corner with my microphone in hand and ask riders well play with me here now this is a street where everyone is a motorcyclist so if if i were to stand there with my mic in hand and ask random riders how they felt about traveling on an electric motorcycle likely the most common objections to the idea would be battery range and charge time because it's a well-known fact that these two hurdles are the bane of all electric vehicles right now but are they really the showstopper they appear to be at least for motorcyclists truri hanul is an avid motorcyclist and a self-proclaimed petrol head but when she rode an electric motorcycle from belgium to istanbul and back she found that having to stop and charge her bike gave her a local connection that was more than electric. My name is Trey Hanul. I'm, uh, in what order should I put this? Actually, right now I'm a student in, uh, I'm doing a master in photography, a teacher's degree in arts, and I have an older master of a gra- as a graphic designer. But actually, yeah, one of my main interests is traveling and traveling on motorcycles. Cherie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. 
Thank you. So you've done a lot of traveling. I understand you started backpacking and, and then you ended up getting onto motorcycles. But just recently, and that's where I want to start, you've been getting into electric motorcycles. You took a trip on an electric motorcycle. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, well, it didn't come... As you said, it didn't come out of the blue. I mean, I have a whole um, life of traveling and I started um, hitchhiking and all that that kind of things. And then I learned to ride a motorbike and I'm a petrol head. In, in fact, I have an old timer BMW R80 G slash S Paris Dakar, the 1986 one, the original. And I love it and I love it a bit still. But at some point, um, I just, you know, I'm banner blind. Um, I look at Facebook, I look at all, all social media, and I developed uh, from the start this sort of blindness for everything which is advertising. And somehow, one as tiny advertisement still did catch my eye. And it just said, uh, electric motorcycles... Uh, please come for a test ride. And I had never heard about such a thing. And it showed a little image of a, of a real motorcycle. So I was intrigued and I did click. And I think that's like the the first and the last time I ever clicked on an advertising. <laughs> and <laughs> um, so I clicked and I booked a test ride and I asked my um, ex-lover along, the one who traveled with me to Iran and, and uh, Central Asia. And so we're still very, very close friends. And so I, I told her, um, come along. I, I've seen this weird electric bi- bike motorcycle. Um, come on and let's, let's go and test it. And... Both of us were really like expecting like a green, slow, granny, I don't know, zooming scooter type of thing. Something, yeah, if you think about the the idea and you know nothing and you haven't read any reviews, that's sort of what comes up first. I mean, I admit. So um, we booked the ride. We arrived there. There were four types, and this was uh, zero motorcycles. And uh, we just got the keys, and 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 we were allowed to to go for the whole morning for the with the four motorcycles, swapping them every once and now again. And as soon as we took off, we just realized that. This was nothing like we we expected. It was just something, it was a new concept. It was very powerful. It was more powerful than the race bike that Gaia had at home, which is a Honda 1000, CBF 1000. Uh, It took off, they they just, all of them, all four types were taking off at an incredible, they had an incredible torque. And so we just we just kept on riding. And the second thing, which was so so stunning, was the silence. And now I can tell you that that I, I love the sound of uh, old motorcycles. I love the sound of my beamer. I, I'm it's this this I mean, I don't have to tell you. I mean, you're a biker too. So so we all love the sound of, of these uh, motorcycles. 
but riding with a, an incredible power on a real motorcycle and fast as you want to go and still having this silence is is something you have to experience what do you hear um at first you hear really nothing you just hear the tires on the tarmac and then it's sort of there's a, there's one speed at which it gets like a little whistle that's a bit annoying like 30 40 kilometers an hour there's like a zzz, this kind of a, a little pitch that could be annoying but then it changes again to just a little little higher and then it's like gone the wind is much lo louder in your helmet then you just can't hear the motorcycle anymore what about vibration does it feel like a regular bike there's none you just feel the road it's kind That's of bizarre it. isn't it because it's it's like the, it's the same vehicle but because of the propulsion in it it's a completely different ride it is it is i, I can just I, i mean i can talk for hours on these these uh, devices but i would just say go book a test ride and 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 test it i mean this the only way i mean i can you can read as many reviews you can just hear me talk And it will do nothing. I mean, just experience it. It's it's really worth the 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 time. And even if you can't pay for it or you don't want to change your into electrics or you have no ambition whatsoever, just do the experience. And and so you you get the idea a bit of the the whole uh, concept. You got real excited about this after riding these bikes, and you decided to try and make it into a trip. Yes, I did. I, <laughs> we came back and we were driving back home in a car, actually. And we just couldn't stop talking about this. And little by little, because I had been doing this um, long motorcycle journeys, like three times, about seven months each, um, of course, you sort of translate it immediately into a travel. What I mean, you just think... What are the travel possibilities of this? Because um, on a long journey, uh, a couple of things are important. Namely, um, you have the price of fuel and fuel is the largest part of a long journey. That's one. Secondly, there's maintenance and there's oil changes, there's valves, there's... Um, Of course, there's, there's all kinds of filters, you have the gearbox, you have all kinds of things that inside an engine can go wrong, especially if you travel in hot countries or in, in, in countries like, like Pakistan or with a lot of dust or whatever, or in, in extreme heights, in extreme heat. So if you take away these two things, which is exactly what electric motorcycles are about you take away the cost of fuel it sort of comes down to very very little cost for for um, your energy that's one secondly you take away the maintenance because there's none left the the maintenance that's left is the brakes and even those Uh, because of the regenerative uh, braking, it, it's much less than on a regular bike. And you you have the tires. And that's full stop. 
There is the inconvenience, of course, plugging this in and waiting for it to charge. But you're thinking with this extra freedom you would have, I guess, with the less expensive fuel or pretty much nothing, I guess it's it's almost not even worth considering. And the lack of maintenance, you're thinking that this could be an, an ideal adventure bike. That's that's exactly, that was my um, my ideal picture in my head. Um, of course, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that these bikes don't yet have the range that one should expect for long-term traveling. But at the same time, I mean, the future is here and it's here to stay. So, um, and I also knew, I just researched a bit and I thought... There's so far, uh, except for in America, there has been uh, one guy who did uh, a journey called Electric Odyssey. And he went from Philadelphia all the way to Ushuaia on a zero, I think a zero S even, with a range of about 150 kilometers. So after 150 kilometers, he had to recharge a full night to get going again. So that was the the one journey that had been done. But in Europe, first of all, it, it was a very unknown um, motorcycle or, or the device, motor, electric motorcycle as such is not known at all. And it had nothing had been done done on these bikes either. So I just thought, okay, if I take it on a on a test ride, and for me, that that could it should be adventurous. That was like the it should be it cannot be to roam and back. I mean that's like nobody is gonna publish anything or or see any. I mean this is like a, a walk in the park. But um, I've been doing the road to Istanbul um, quite a few times, so it sounded also it resonates. You know, Istanbul always has like this exotic vibe to it. And I have a few friends living there. So what I did was just asking to get a motorcycle to take from Belgium to Istanbul and back. And that was the whole idea. Uh, it was about uh, 8,000 kilometers. I knew, I, I estimated it would take about two and a half months or three months maybe. And I had time. I, this was the summer of 2015. And for some reason, I... I don't know. I was in between studies and I had time. So you were trying to convince Zero to get in on this and make an adventure out of it, sort of, and, and turn it into something that maybe would promote electric bikes. Exactly. What, what I did first, actually, because I've been publishing articles, I've been, I have a book uh, to my name. I mean, I'm not falling out, out, out of the sky, so I'm, I have a network that is, I mean, I can publish things. And so the, fir the very first thing I did was um, calling the biggest newspaper in Belgium and asking if they would publish an article on this journey. And they just didn't even have to think about it. They didn't even have to discuss it. It was like, okay, you're going to Istanbul on an electric motorcycle, you get five pages. Mm. And with this message, I went to zero and I had this, yeah, this idea, I will leave then. Uh, this is more or less the route. Um, I'm, uh, I'm insured for if anything goes wrong with the motorcycle, we can, we can just tow it back. There's no problem. I've, I'm experienced. I know the Balkan. Uh, I've crossed it many times. I've been in Istanbul many times. So actually there's 
very little risk for you and all the pluses. But that didn't turn out that way. <laughs> right. So for whatever reasons, Zero decides, no, they don't want to do this. And you decide to still do it anyway. You're going to go on your own. Where do you get the bike? Yeah, what I then did was um, uh, went to this dealer where we where we uh, borrowed to buy the, the test bikes. And I explained this idea. And uh, I asked him why I couldn't understand why Zero Motorcycles wasn't keen on this idea. And then he just said, yeah, but I, I know, I mean, they're, they're just, they're conservative. They have a different vision, but how long do you need the bike for? And I just explained the whole thing to him. And he said, I would go if I would have time. Uh, here's the bike. I'm waiting for a bike uh, to be delivered next week. week. Uh, take it and bring it back. And that's it. You'll get it from me. Yep. So there you are, you're, you're set on your adventure. And what was the adventure like? I mean, okay, so you, first of all, you got to pack this bike up. Um, there's probably not very many accessories available for it as far as packing goes, but you can get around that um, with the, some strapping systems or something. But so what's it like to ride this thing all the way to Istanbul and back? It was, it was totally exciting, of course. I mean, it was really something. I, the thing is that the, the motorcycle didn't arrive the next week, as he told. It arrived like two days before I left, which meant that I, I had no idea except for the figures on paper how, uh, what the range was. And um, so it was an estimate between 180 and 250 kilometers. But that's a huge difference, you know, mm -hmm. it makes for a, a different planning. So the first day I had no idea how far I could ride. So what I did was stopping after a couple of hours and already recharging in a, in a normal, um, actually in a fuel station in the plug next to the fridge, you know. You just <laughs> go in and ask them if you, can, if you can plug in. I, absolutely. That's how I did it the whole journey. I just went into any cafe, any restaurant or the places where I slept. I just asked, uh, because that's also one thing. You can just plug it into like, like a mobile phone. And people are, so far, they're just very surprised. They ask you f plenty of questions, but nobody ever refused. And, and, no, and close to no one ever wanted money for it. Because somehow people seem to, to realize that these are batteries and they don't consume much. And I could, I had even a meter with me, so you could even um, calculate it. And I had to use it only once, so they just let me charge anywhere I wanted. And that's the whole thing with these electric motorcycles. Actually, this you have to make a switch of mind. It's something like if you stop, you charge. So if you stop for a coffee for a half an hour, for an hour, you stop for lunch. All the time, the first thing you do is just look for a plug. I had a 10-meter cable, so I was just able to, to go even on, on a big terrace. I, I could plug into the kitchen of a restaurant. And, and that's the whole idea. Stopping is charging. And when you're stopping and looking for a place to charge, because there's no commercial infrastructure there yet, because electrics just haven't, uh, you know, haven't got to that yet, you're having to talk with people... This the sort of interaction that you're forced to do. Do you find that it that it made a difference in how your trip was or what your experience was? 
Absolutely. And that's also something that I had thought of beforehand. I knew the limited range, uh, which in the end turned out to be between 200 and 250 kilometers about. My record was 273 one day, but I think I had a tailwind. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, the thing uh, I knew beforehand because of the limited range, I wasn't going to make the same uh, amount of kilometers every day as I would do on a normal bike. And I knew it would just slow me down and I would have to stop more often. I would have to look for, for lodging places or camping or put up my tent more often or even even maybe I, I just knew and it did happen I knew I could get stranded without um, energy and I would have to stop maybe at somebody's home and ask for a plug there. And this did happen it, just a few times. And it just, it's, it's part of the adventure. And it did, a friend of mine actually, he came to the, to the motorcycle. He's not a motorcyclist at all. And I explained this whole idea about the limited range and I mean, of course, the slower you ride, the longer you, you can ride. So if you ride slowly, you can really extend it up to 240, 250 kilometers. And so everything changes. The range is shorter and the ride is slower, but it makes for a different adventure. And this, from the start, was something I had in my head. So it wasn't a frustration. It was just part of the game. With motorcycles nowadays, they're, they're so reliable, first of all. They, they tend to, I'm talking gas-powered motorcycles, they're so reliable. They'll run for a very long time. We put on huge fuel tanks and we carry all of our gear with us, usually to avoid having to stop. But in doing so, in, in making it so that we have to stop less, and I know some people will argue and say, well, there's certain areas where you can't get fuel. Okay, well, that's, that's aside from the point. There's only a few areas like that around, really. But what we're doing, though, by by stopping less, is we're sort of missing out on that other half. Like, I, I picture it as two halves. Like, we've got this half where we're the riding experience, you know, when you're riding along your scenery. And the other half of it is making connections with people and understanding something about the places you're going through. And that's what you're missing out on if you're not stopping. Exactly. You 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 get it totally. That's exactly how I would phrase it. I mean, there's, of course... I'm also a motorbiker and I love to ride. So I did also have some days that I had a short distance to go. I put it on, you have three settings on these uh, zeros, like a eco setting, which is like the, the, the granny setting. Then there's a sports setting and a custom setting, which you can really um, just custom made, like uh, whatever you want to adapt, you can just change it on, on your phone and it then talks to the motorcycle and changes the whole uh, mapping of the of the ride. So what I did was have, a, if, I, if I was craving for a real motorbiking day, I just looked for a place at 100 or 150 kilometers and I put it on sports and, I, and off I went. So that was my riding day. But the other days, I just uh, went into the, the, the real traveler's mode. And then it was about meeting people, stopping, 
talking, taking huge lunch breaks, reading books. I had a few books and I finished them all. Um, so that that was really part of the of the journey. And I think this in this time, this is what this friend actually said. I did I didn't go into that. This friend actually said, so if I get it right, I see a, a, a vehicle of the future which sort of tunes into our need to slow down. And this is the need of our times also. We need to slow down. We're all running too fast. We have this rat race. And this is the futuristic vehicle that sort of forces us to slow down. Hmm. And I thought that was quite quite smart. But of course... I'm sure this is not the intention of the motorcycle um, manufacturers. Well, no, <laughs> they certainly want to get them charging faster and going farther distance on the battery. And of course, that's what will make it mainstream is that's I think that's probably everyone's first concern when they look at a, an electric motorcycle of any kind is, well, how long does it last on the battery? And then how long do I have to wait to charge it up? That's always a downside. But it, it's almost it's sort of counterintuitive when you look at it, because if you don't think about this and you don't think this through the thought of an electric motorcycle on a trip that you're doing right there to Istanbul, it, it seems like that's the last thing you would want to do. Yet when you really run through like what we're talking about now, it's almost the perfect vehicle for the for that adventure. Exactly. That that was exactly my idea. I ju- I just had this this whole um, concept was just fitting on all sides, and that's what what I was so passionate about. Back in nineteen ninety nine. You did your your first moto trip. What was that? Um, that was my yeah. That was my first long motorcycle journey. I had uh, I had been riding to Tunisia once. Uh, of course, I was riding all around Europe already. I had been riding to Finland and so on. But um, I, I was a traveler long before I was a motorbiker, and so all of a sudden these two started to connect. And of course, I mean, it, it comes together in a natural way. And I, I had this idea, I, I think I picked it up in a book or something, I'm not sure. If you live in Europe, there's this old tradition of the 1950s and 60s of overlanding hippies. And there have been numerous people doing this this trail. It's called the Hippie Trail. It even has a name. And this is the journey from Europe to India. And, you know, India, spiritual, all these kind of... You, we're really talking hippie era here. And so this is like a classic route. You can start at home and you don't even have to take a, a, a boat. You can just ride all the way to India or to China if you want want to go further on. So this all of a sudden became my idea. So the idea was to um, ride overland from Belgium to India and back, to, from Belgium to the Himalayas and back actually, because that was a journey that I had been doing in uh, like 10 years before that. And I had seen a specific stretch of road from uh, Manali too deep uh, in across the Himalayas in Leh, which is like a it's a 500 kilometer stretch, which which crosses over uh, 4,000 and 5,000 meter passes, 
and you're really deep into the high Himalayas. And I had done it on trucks and on buses, uh, even hitchhiking at times 10 years before. So this was in my head. It always remained there that one day I want to ride this road again. And then all of a sudden the motorcycle came in. So I said, this is what I want to ride. I want to ride this road with my own motorcycle. And I convinced my then girlfriend, Iris, and she couldn't. She couldn't ride, and she. But she's an adventurer as well in in her heart, and um, and she told me, okay, that's that's good. I will learn to ride if you take a motorcycle maintenance course, and that's what we did. And for three years we prepared this journey, and um, I became uh, close. I I just didn't get the degree to, to become a. Um, I'm a garage mechanic. Yeah, you went I, through I, all the work. You you were going for the full. You were going for the license. That's not just a, a course on mechanics. You you were going to become a mechanic. I was I was going actually. I was going to uh, to become a mechanic. I was going for the license, and I thought that was wow. really because in Dutch you say um, graphic designer, and then the the second word for a mechanic is garagist. So I had this idea of having a card like a, a visiting card. Grafisch ontwerp garagist. This is the idea I had in my mind. Anyhow, so um, I became close to a licensed mechanic and she learned to ride. And then one day in 1999, we set off. Now you're riding Yamaha XT500s, is that right? Yes, it is. So were you, did you already have them for a while before you left? Uh, I had them uh, at the start of the motorcycle maintenance course because they're very easy uh, motorcycles to work uh, work on. And I took uh, three of them totally apart and put them back together. So I knew these things, um, I wouldn't say by heart, but I, but I knew very well what, what how I could work on them, even more or less on the side of the road. Why was it the wrong bike? It was a very wrong bike. Um, I still love them though because they're also they're they're a classic, just like my GS is a is a true classic bike. Oh yeah, I mean when, uh, when I say wrong bike, I mean I know it was the wrong bike for your journey at that time in your life, and that's what I mean. Of course, we, I'm not dissing the, the bike is great. The bike is absolutely fantastic, yeah. and it, and it's a it's a legend. It's absolutely a legend, and I love the way they look. But um, the main drawback was this this Kickstarter. And though I I was fine kicking them, but it's still a 500cc. So it's it's not a piece of cake. You have to really do it right. And Iris was never very comfortable kicking them. So at one point, she even got a really big kickback from the bike and she broke a bone in her right foot. So that meant from that time on, she was never confident enough to truly kick hard enough. So she got more and more kickbacks. And the result was that I was kicking both bikes all along. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't very comfortable. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is I didn't realize that when it's 45 degrees Celsius outside, or when you're on a steep hill, or you're in deep sand, 
I mean, there's just no way that you're going to put out the side stand and then just throw yourself onto it because there's nothing. I mean, you have to do it from standing on one leg and I'm too small for that. So um, we had a, a couple of occasions where it was really, really very annoying. We had an encounter with, a, with an angry policeman who was more or less chasing us. We had um, situations indeed with like 45 degrees and almost getting stuck with the motorcycles, um, like kicking for half an hour and, and you're, you're just, you just want to leave. I mean, these are the kind of situations that you just, you swear, that's all, that's all you do. <laughs> Well, when you say 45 degrees, I know you're talking Celsius, which is... Celsius. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the conversion works out to, but it's hot. <laughs> That's really hot. It's, it's desert temperatures. Right. But just a minute ago, you said that you, before you started on this trip, you said that you were already a traveler and the bikes sort of came together in a natural way. What do you mean by that? Um, yeah, because, I mean, it's... I've been hitchhiking all over Europe. I've been... I love to ride cars... Uh, I've always loved it. As soon as I could ride, uh, drive cars, I, I, I was, I was addicted. And then, it's sort of with the motorcycle. It, it was just like another means of moving, and it made so much sense. And and to this day, I don't understand why I didn't pick it up earlier. And it, it's just a motorcycle is like. Especially when traveling, if you're traveling, if you're going on foot, I'm, I'm, I'm an, I just admire. I think walkers, I mean travelers, world travelers who are just walking long, long ways, or even bicycles. I mean, I just, I'm, they're heroes, in my opinion. And then there's car drivers, and that's a different thing because you, if you travel in a car through a country like Pakistan or something, you are perceived as rich because you're traveling in a car. I wouldn't say I would never do it. I mean, I've been renting cars in Armenia, in Georgia, in Iran even. And it's a great way because then if you're two or three in a car, you can talk, you have your luggage. I mean, it's very practical. But on a motorcycle, you become like a horse rider in, in modern times. And it's just this different feeling. I mean, the climate is there, the temperature is there, the physical experience of being on the road is so much present. And you're also perceived differently by the, people, by the local people. I mean, you, you just stop. And they look at you and you're, you're like an, I don't know, they, they see you as you're not so such a rich person, but still you're an adventurer. So, so there's a, a very easy contact there. Do you see it as sort of a, a balance? Because, you know, when you move slowly, you tend to see things very in depth. And when you move quickly in a vehicle, you see much less, although you go greater distances and, you, and you're quite closed off from everything. Is a motorcycle that, that's sort of that perfect balance where you're still approachable, where you're, you're still experiencing, like you said, that the feel of everything there, yet you are very close to being the person that walks around or, or rides a bicycle? Exactly. That's, that's, yeah, you're good with words, Jim. <laughs> <laughs>
the the trip didn't end up where you wanted it to. Um, in 1999, no, I had. Um, a close encounter with a pedestrian, as I is could that what call, you call it. Is that what it's called? A close encounter with a pedestrian? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> How close was it? Yeah, I just hit the man square. <laughs> uh, so did they walk out in front of you? Is that what happened? Um, I was... Actually, we. I'm always the one riding in front. So this was a journey with, with uh, Iris. And she was, uh, I was always navigating and she was always riding behind. And what happened was we were in the middle of Pakistan between two towns and we uh, like, I don't know, 200 kilometers from where, where we left that morning. And we passed through a quite deserted piece of road. It was like two, three hundred kilometers of like only villages and then empty roads and then another village. And there was this small village and we just exited the village. And somehow I have the idea that the factory clo was just closing or something. There was a lot of people on the road all of a sudden. And I should have been more wary because no... Uh, if I would do it again, I think I would be even more um, cautious. And still, I mean, we had been two, th two and a half months on the road, so we, we were not coming straight from Belgium. So we had already some experience there in, in, in chaotic traffic. But anyhow, all of a sudden, this one man uh, jumped from the left, because you're riding on the left in, in Pakistan, so he jumped from the left side across the road to the other side where somebody was waiting and he didn't even look. And I didn't even see him. I mean, he was all of a sudden in front of my, my motorcycle. I couldn't even brake. I didn't even have time to brake, let alone horn or whatever. So I just hit him square and uh, just f frontal, full frontal. And... We weren't riding fast, something like 40, 50 kilometers an hour. So that was like really slow, slow pace, but still fast enough. I hit him and the bike sort of like made a, a um, almost a, a half a turn and fell on my right leg and crashed my leg. And so my right leg was fractured. I mean, my, my foot was dangling basically. And it was an open fracture. Oh, wow. So, so uh, here you are in, in the middle of a foreign country, you, you, you know, completely out of your element. And, and what happened to the guy that you hit? Um, from what I remember, and he was brought into the hospital after also, um, he was just, something was wrong with his shoulder, but he was just sitting on the, on the tarmac. And, and that was it. I mean, he wasn't, he didn't seem to be in a lot of pain or anything as drastic as as uh, as dramatic as my fracture. And now, as far as the police goes, do they run you through? You know, I mean, are you considered guilty as soon as you as soon as an accident happens? How did they handle that? Um, the whole thing. What what happened was I fainted. That was just. I mean, they just. I mean, I missed like. I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, so I, I wasn't there. But then um, Iris, there was no, we didn't have a mobile phone. Uh, um, there was no, people didn't speak English. 
there wasn't a, a phone around. Um, this was 1999, you know, mobile phones weren't uh, a big thing then, even, and certainly not in Pakistan. And uh, finally she managed to stop a passing car and uh, she insisted and just urged the people to take me to the near nearest hospital. And um, there was just no police at that time because there were just like loads of people, all people around. But there wasn't a mob or anything angry going on. People immediately sort of understood that I it wasn't my fault. And um, But nobody was angry. There was no tension. I mean, not that I can recall. And so finally she found a car and uh, we drove off and she just grabbed the water, the passports and the money and she left the motorcycles in the middle of the, of the road. And we arrived at this um, dispensarium and a guy comes running out with a syringe. And this is like, you know, everything that people tell you not to do. It's like, <laughs> no, you can't just inject me with a syringe. I mean, this is not. And the guy, the, the doctor or the nurse who came out, he immediately understood the problem. And he said, no, no, he didn't talk English either. And he just said, no, 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 no problem at all. And he showed a syringe and then um, a plastic, you know, um, a blister with the, um, the, the clean needle in it. And, and he just said, don't, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to give you some, some um, sedation, I mean, morphine, morphine or, or something. And when we saw the plastic, with we were thought, okay, okay, this this is okay. It's 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 not. This is not uh, the the jungle, you know. This is this is civilized. And so I got a shot, and but I think it was an hour between the accident itself and this and this um, this morphine. So for an hour, I was sort of like I don't know, like howling or something, <laughs> and. Um, and so then we drove off to a bigger hospital. They got a surgeon who spoke perfect English. They got him straight from his tennis court. Even in the village, there was something, or it was a small town. And he had been studying in Austria and doing nothing but ski fractures. So he was just all smiles. He was like, <laughs> oh, this is really what I love to do. You know, he was really keen on getting on this. And that was, that was, uh, and he was great. He was absolutely great. He was very relaxing. He knew what he was doing and he put everything like calm down and have a Coca-Cola and, and, you know, let's talk this through and, and so on. And that had and, to be a huge relief for you. I mean, you're sitting there with a compound fracture in a foreign country, doesn't speak your language. And then all of a sudden he walks out. I mean, there's your hero. <laughs> That that's my hero, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and then uh, and also by then I was high on morphine, so so I I, I couldn't care less, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great day. <laughs> no, no, I'm exaggerating, but but I mean the pain was gone, but the thing was um, the police then came to the hospital, and they um, they wanted Iris to go back to the place and to look at the motorcycles and explain the story and so on. 
And I was stuck. I mean, I, I couldn't do anything. So she had to go by herself with the coppers. And and when she came back, she told me the story that she arrived at the place of the accident. The motorcycles were gone. And she sort of freaked out. And she was like, what? where are the motorcycles? And some old guy had taken them and put, put them in a shed behind a, a lock and just locked them away from, from uh, all the people. And he just said, they're safe with me. They can stay here as long as needed and just go and talk to the police now. Wow. And then the police came up and they sort of had the right story, even from onlookers. Apparently some witnesses told a true story. And um, they came with Iris back to the hospital and they said, listen, um, this is a bit of a problem. I mean, he, the guy, the pedestrian is obviously, in. Uh, I mean, it's his fault. So will you uh, charge him? And we were like, I mean, this is, this is a poor country with a poor peasant being so stupid to walk in front of your motorcycle. Are you going to charge a Pakistani guy mm. for an accident? I mean, we just didn't even have to talk about, discuss this. I mean, for us, it was clear, like, let it go. I mean, we're insured. We're going to be fine. And there's just no use to have this guy uh, in front of a court and paying for the expenses or whatever, or if he cannot pay, put in jail or whatever they do. So for us, it was out of the question that we, we would charge him with this accident. So what did you end up doing? Did you end up staying there and, and getting your leg operated on? Um, what happened, the police then came with a, uh, the new option. They said, okay, if he's not guilty and you're certainly not guilty of this accident, would you please sign a paper stating that this was just an accident? <laughs> and and they truly came up with a paper. And I just, we don't have a copy of this because this was hilarious. It was all in um, in Urdu, in in um, Arabic writing, and on the bottom of the of the paper was in in English. But I think there were a few mistakes there. That. Um, this was just an accident. And then we had to sign underneath that line. And that was it. You know, that was the end of the police story. <laughs> and we said, okay. So he was off the hook. And then the the surgeon there, because this was still a small town, um, he said, I can um, treat you here, but... I would prefer you to go to the capital because they have better equipment. Uh, you're closer to transport if anything is, is urgent. I mean, he said, I would advise you, I will stabilize this thing. I will put you in a half cast. I, I take the x-rays and so on. So everything is under control. But I would, I would advise you to take uh, an ambulance to the capital and get to another hospital there. And that's what happened. He arranged for an ambulance for the the next 500 kilometers through the mountains and everything, through the night even, and it was a full moon. And uh, so we went to Islamabad. That's where I had the operation and I had the best surgeon in the world and also a chap who studied in England for like 
20 years. And I've seen him back uh, three years after that. And we're still in touch over Facebook. So the trip should have ruined your adventure. But what really happened? Well, uh, at first, at the very, in the first hospital, I still had this this vague idea of just staying in Pakistan for a month or two months till my leg was healed and then continue the journey. But uh, it's, it quickly became clear that this would was not going to happen. I mean, my leg was going and um, it needed healing for probably a year or at least half a year. Yeah. I, I was going to be in a full cast for um, two months and, and so on. I mean, it was just like this was the end of that journey. And, and what did you take from this? Did, did this sort of change your outlook on travel? Did it sort of open your eyes to something that maybe you didn't know before? Well, it certainly opened my eyes for, for Pakistan. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, because when uh, you tell the story, when you when you say, you know, you get into an accident, I mean, all those things that you hear in stories, you know, about all of a sudden you're instantly the uh, the person that's at fault and, and the police are there. And then you said you, you abandon your bikes and you leave them there. You think the bikes are going to be gone. But none of this happens. No, no, none of we We were, I don't know. I think we were lucky, but at the same time, I hear stories, similar stories that go just as well. And I mean, people are generally kind and generally willing to help. And it's rare that you hear people abandoning somebody or leaving somebody on the side of the road. And I don't know. People are are willing to help in whichever country you are. But of course, we were certainly lucky to find this one surgeon in the small town and then the other surgeon in, in Islamabad. So there's there's an amount of luck involved as well. You know what happens as a traveler? I don't consider myself as a well, this sounds blatant, probably. In some cases, I am a bloody tourist. And in some journeys, I'm certainly a tourist. And even when I'm on a motorcycle, I might come off it and, and visit something, and then I'm just an ordinary tourist. But on these long journeys, the most of the time, I consider myself as a traveler. And it's a different thing. It's sort of like... I sort of refer to the the way artists were traveling in medieval times. They were going to Italy, they were going to France to study and to study the old masters, to study along the road, to get new experiences and to sort of like in a philosophical philosophical way to enhance their understanding of life. And I know, I know it sounds really like, like Indian, bing, bing, bing. Um, I, don't, I don't mean it like that. It's just, it's, it gives a boost to your wisdom. It gives a boost to your experiences of life. It um, makes your life so much more rich. You just become more humble even. You just see that Everybody all over the world, people want to be happy. All over the world, people care for their kids. I mean, most people 
or or good people and so each time i'm traveling i learn again things that i couldn't have learned staying behind my desk or even reading a thousand books it's different it gives you I need to be out there and see it with my own eyes. I need to experience the thing. I need to talk to people and talk a lot and listen. Most most of all, listen to them and listen to their stories and see how they look at life and what they think. And that's that. That's for me the main point of traveling. Great story. Wonderful to talk to you, Trui. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for for the interest. I've been speaking with Truy Hunul from her home in Belgium, and we have a link to Truy's website in the show notes for this episode at www.adventureriderradio.com. You know, I've been telling you for a while now that wider foot pegs for your motorcycle will make a huge improvement in the handling. But that's not completely accurate. Why? Because it depends on the foot peg design. Wider isn't necessarily better unless it's done properly. And IMS Products gets that. When IMS enlarges a foot peg, they do it in a way that doesn't change the position of the factory's front edge. That matters because if you add width all around, the front, the back, and the sides, you have to tilt your foot more to get under the shifter. It's little things like that that make quality worth it. And IMS uses cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, a certified heat treating process, and they build their pegs in the U.S., www.imsproducts.com. Have a look. They've got a full line of adventure pegs for people just like us. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We're going to be right back in just a second with ADV Women's Rally. Stay with us. If you're thinking ahead into the West Coast, maybe you got a business meeting, maybe you got a vacation planned, whatever. Do you know where you can rent a BMW F800 GS for an adventure or a KLR650 or maybe a 700 GS or, or even an R1200 GS? I do. Tour USA. TourUSA.us has motorcycle rentals available for the Pacific Northwest. You can drop in there if you're heading up to Canada or if you're going down to the the States. You can rent a bike from them and head off on your adventure. And on top of that, they're connected with PSSOR, so they also do training and tours. So you can set up your whole adventure here. The nice thing is with this thing is I like the fact that you can fly in with just your helmet and your jacket and you're ready to go on an adventure. Their bikes are equipped for adventures. They've got protection on them already. They've got Pelican cases, the whole bit, they're ready to go. For motorcycle rentals on the West Coast, drop by www.tourusa.us. And when you do, make sure you let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Jack spent a good part of her life as a professional motocross racer. She now takes those skills and heads up ADV Women, which is hosting the ADV Women's Rally. Using techniques that Pat has developed specifically for teaching women riders, Pat plans the event as a family event open to all. My name is Pat Jakes. I'm from Granby, Colorado. My company is ADV Women, and I empower women through motorcycle training and coaching. Pat, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
So let's just start off by talking about your company. What do you do with that? ADV Woman is all about getting more women riding motorcycles. Uh, I've been riding my entire life, and uh, it's very clear to me that riding motorcycles is an, a very different experience for women than it is for men. And it, we both experience the same freedom and the, the same joy of being outdoors. Uh, but for women, it can oftentimes be a, a very freeing and transformative experience. And in what I have found is that, uh, you know, motorcycling is a male-dominated industry. So everything from the bike to gear to training is is sort of optimized for the guys. But women are very different. So what we're about doing is creating uh, a unique, powerful experience for women, a safe experience. And, uh, ultimately, you know, it's all about getting the, the gals out on the bikes and, and just having a lot of fun and experiencing that joy. Well, you're not just an average rider. You started riding, as you just mentioned there, when you were a kid, you got a mini bike at what, what were you 12 or 14 or something? I was eight when I got the mini bike and 11 when I got the motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> so you started off with a mini bike and then maybe just tell the story about getting the motorcycle. Well, uh, my dad uh, was really, really, uh, it, it was important for us to do well in school. And so I made the honor roll in school, the honor society in school. And my father was just so proud. He asked me, what did I want to, for my reward? And I said, a motorcycle. So Darned if he didn't go down to the local Honda shop and picked up a, a, a Honda SL100 candy apple red, and we brought it home. And it was funny. We made a pretty big production of it. All the neighborhood kids were standing there, and my brother was standing there. And I didn't know how to maintain the motorcycle. And my brother, he's three years older than I am. He, he was my idol. So I made a big production in to-do out of saying, you know, Bruce, if you teach me how to work on the motorcycle, I'll give you half of it. And he ripped the keys out of my hand, took off, and that was that. <laughs> <laughs> but you did learn to ride, and you learned to ride really well because you ended up getting into competing. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, it, my brother started, first of all, it, you know, it started neighborhood races with the kids. Once we got the motorcycle, the other kids had to get it. And so then we built a little track. And then next thing you know, my brother goes down to the local motocross track, and my dad at, at the time, and I'm going to date myself here, uh, he was a little afraid of letting me race, but we showed up at a track and they had a powder puff class. So uh, they enrolled me in the powder puff class and I wound up lapping the entire field. It, it was pretty funny because we were on the start and all the other girls were sitting there with the motorcycles just idling. And there I was with my bike pegged wide open, uh, ready to rip off the line, right? And uh, <laughs> So I think I did a couple, three powder puff classes before my dad let me start racing against the guys, and, and I never looked back. And, and, you know, in South Carolina, back in the 60s and 70s, I was about the only girl uh, racer, and, and so I raced against the guys and, and enjoyed a very successful career. So what made the switch over to adventure riding? Was that just a natural thing? You know, for me, it's age. Um, I, oh, don't say that. I hate yeah, hearing that. It is. Well, you know. No, I'm I, just ignoring the whole age thing, Pat. I'm, just, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I'm not into this. Well, I guess maybe, you know, you're only as young as you feel. And and um, 
and I feel very, very young, but the reality is, is I tore my body up a lot when I was racing motocross. I I said to my uh, more than one orthopedic surgeon, I said, your kids are going to have the best education I can afford. <laughs> and I've held my end of the bargain. So, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I love my single track riding. I, I still love ha- doing very, very spirited single track riding and, and enjoy that. I ride with, uh, with some of the B level 30 and 40 year old guys. But I also know that, you know, there's going to come a time when then when that's probably not going to be the smart choice. And I also like the whole idea of, uh, you know, going places I've never been before, because truthfully, it takes me back to when I was that little girl on that SL 100. And I would just be riding along and see a trail or, or something and say, "Ooh, I wonder where that goes. And that's exactly what I do now. I mean, I'm riding down the road on my 1190 and I see a dirt road and I go, "Ooh, I wonder where that goes. So I go find out, you know. Um, and, and so it is just, I guess it is age related. It's all about, you know, being a kid and staying that kid at heart. What do you think of the 1190? Why the choice of that? Um, it's really a fun bike. I, I love the power on it. Uh, yeah, I had to have it lowered. I only have about a 29, 30 inch inseam. So it's a, it's a really tall bike and it's top heavy, but, uh, oh my gosh, the power is so much fun. Uh, Alex at conflicts motor sports lowered it for me and, uh, I've had a blast on it. You know, I cannot lift the bike because of my injuries. I know all the right techniques, but I can't lift the bike. So it's kind of funny. I have to carry uh, a dust rider's hoist with me so that in the event that I do lay it down, that I can pick the, the thing up again. But that I, you know, the only thing I would say about the 1190 is that it's top heavy. If it were, if it had a lower center of gravity, it would be my perfect, uh, adventure bike, uh, but it does not leave a whole lot of margin for error because it's, you know, if, if you have the slightest bobble on, on, um, balance, uh, women don't have the upper body strength that men have. So the slightest little bobble, uh, can be catastrophic for me. So you, it, it really does require that you be on your toes, but I love the bike. I really do. It's a lot of incentive it. to keep it upright. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, not being able to pick it up. What do you mean a dust rider's hoist? What, what are you, what are you describing there? Um, Dust Riders is a, is a, a company out of New Zealand and they make a motorcycle hoist. Uh, it weighs, I think about 11 or 12 pounds and it comes in three or four different pieces and I carry it with me. And when the bike falls over, put it together and it's got a ratcheting mechanism on it and a hook. And so you hook it to the frame or the foot peg and you can, um, ratchet the motorcycle back up pretty effortlessly. And, you know, the truth is, even if we can lift the motorcycle, sometimes we get into sand or we get into slick, muddy conditions and you can't get a purchase with your feet. So, uh, and I also figure with the ratcheting mechanism and parachute cord, it gives me, uh, the ability to self-rescue if the bike goes off the trail. How big is the hoist? How much does it weigh? Uh, I think it's about 12 pounds. It's a chunk, and uh, if it if it were smaller, that would be great. But that's what's on the market right now. And well, I'm thinking that's not too bad. I mean, Twelve pounds. I mean, that that could be a huge asset. Like you said, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people. And you said females aren't as strong as males. There's a lot of males that can't pick up their bike when it falls down, especially when it's loaded. You hear all kinds of stories where people have to take their bags off to get their bike up. Yeah, I I ride a lot with a guy named Mark, and uh, he's a fantastic rider, but he's he's had some back surgeries, so. He can lift his motorcycle, but he shouldn't. 
And so when he saw my hoist, he went and bought himself one. <laughs> it sounds yeah. nice. You had an 800, uh, an F800 before that. I did. You know, the F800 absolutely positively is the best all-around motorcycle I've ever owned. And there's a world of difference between between the BMW and the KTM. Um, the BMW is like a it's like a fine-tuned Swiss watch or a sewing machine. You know, it's got that purr to it. Then you get on the KTM and it's got the big growl to it. Uh, the F800 has that low center of gravity. And I was actually riding the F800 at the Cycle World Adventure Rally a couple years ago. And, and after the rally was over, I hooked up with this guy from Texas who was on an 1190R. And he's a B-level um, enduro rider. And we were just flying all over the place. We were riding part of the COBDR and a bunch of the passes and stuff. And I pretty much, I mean, I kept up with him but I pretty much had the F800 pegged wide open almost the whole time. <laughs> so that was when I decided, okay, let's, let's have some fun and get a little more horsepower. But uh, I think the F800 is a fantastic bike. Um, and, and, you know, with the right suspension, I know there's some suspension mods you can do to it. Uh, I think it's a great uh, middleweight adventure motorcycle. Despite age then, clearly there's a lot of kid left in you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you are also about to host the second annual women-led ADV Women Rally for July 20th to 23rd this year. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure, Jim. Uh, yeah, we, uh, I've gone to several uh, motorcycle rallies, and I've wondered why there have not been more women. And so I reached out and started talking to women, and uh, the women just don't feel welcome. Oftentimes, sometimes there are issues of safety, and they get tired of getting hit on. And sometimes they just don't feel like it's a, it's a very inviting environment for the women. And so I decided that I wanted to create an event where women were the focus rather than just an afterthought. So uh, I started hatching the plan for the ADV Women Rally and hosted the first one last year. Uh, we had right around 50 people come, and we had folks. We we held it here in Granby, Colorado, and had women from um, as far away as 1,800 miles come. We were 16% women and 40% men. The the rally, we we welcome men to come ride with us, and we had uh, quite a few husband and wife couples that came too, um, and so we we had a lot of success. The the rally is uh, is very. Uh, focused on training and fun and tribe and camaraderie. You know, I have developed a, a set of skills and methodology for teaching women that's different. Um, and, and it came about because uh, I used to be a, a, an, a ski instructor with the National Sports Center for the Disabled. And what came through loud and clear to me is that everyone, whether they are able-bodied or not, are differently able so I was looking at the fact that, you know, here women are, we have 40% less muscle mass in our upper body than men, and trying to wrestle around these big 500-pound adventure bikes is pretty difficult. So I started really paying attention to what I do when I ride. Uh, how is it that I'm able to handle that 550-pound bike? And, and then I worked with a bunch of beginner riders and translated that into techniques that I could that I could teach to make it easier for women to be able to ride. So, uh, 
So yeah, we hosted the rally for the first time last year. We taught Adventure Essentials um, class, which is uh, fundamentals for the big adventure bikes. And we taught Dirt Bike Essentials, which is fundamentals for the little single track bikes. But because we want women to be um, self-reliant and capable in all aspects of motorcycling, we also taught a bunch of classroom sessions like how to fix a flat, how to pick up the bike even if you can't, if it's too heavy. Um, we taught trailside maintenance, how to load and unload the motorcycle, intro to GPS navigation, moto camping, and for fun, uh, our photographer, uh, Kathy Larson at Grizz Girl Photography taught uh, uh, travel photography class. So the whole intention was essential skills. And, you know, we weren't expecting anyone to leave being an expert, but we expected everyone to leave with a little bit of a knowledge, enough to get started, to be able to, you know, have a kickoff point to be able to go out and do adventure riding and, and not be completely at a loss. And, you know, what sets us apart from everyone else is every single instructor is a woman. So, you know, women teaching women is very natural. Uh, that's culturally, that's what women do. And, uh, and, and it's really cool because a, a woman will see a guy do it and go, mm, I don't know if I can do that or not. But if a woman sees a sister doing it, then she's like, wow, wow, if she can do it, well, well, maybe I can do it too. And, you know, so much about riding and motorcycling has to do with confidence. So the more we can build confidence, uh, the better off we all are. So, you know, and, and aside from that, uh, it's just so fun. You get a group of women together and it's just a blast. There's so much fun and camaraderie and support. Um, <laughs> I think the thing that made me laugh most about it was after the rally was over, I went to another rally and a guy came up to me and he said, Pat, I was just talking to those girls over there and they were all at your rally and they were saying how supportive and nurturing it was. And he said, what do you mean supportive and nurturing? I said, oh, okay, let me translate to you. We taught them how to ride logs. We taught them how to, uh, how to do emergency stops. You know, the guys want to know all the skills. They want to know the nitty gritty. And and the, the experience for the women was supportive and nurturing. Mm. So there's completely different language um, for the men and the women. And obviously what they're getting out of it is slightly different as well. Right. I mean, it, it all translates into skills. Um, and, and with the women, you know, what I teach, and I, I teach... Uh, I teach the V-Twin crowd, too. I work with the Steel Horse Sisterhood and do lessons with the V-Twin ladies. But I teach women to ride with their feet and their legs as much as possible, and using their upper body is a last resort. And again, women have way less strength in their upper body than men do. And, and the truth is, what can feel easy to an average man can actually feel pretty difficult for even a very fit woman. So... Um, I'm looking at how can I conserve energy in the upper body? What can I do to be as efficient as in, is possible? So when I teach riding from the feet up, it all starts with balance because, you know, we're supposed to ride balanced, standing balanced over the foot pegs. And if you lose your balance, that's usually when we grab the handlebars and wrestle ourselves back into position. So when you lose your balance a lot, then you're constantly correcting yourself and wasting all this energy on your upper body 
And then all of a sudden something happens where you really need to have that strength move and you don't, you're wiped out because, because your form wasn't right or your balance wasn't right. So we teach women how to use their legs differently. I mean, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I worked with a, a rider who was struggling to do slow, tight turns, and she was on a, a I think it was a G650 GS, and and even though she had her head looking to the inside, she was just so struggling to hold and, and concerned and af- afraid of being able to hold the weight of the bike that her arms were locked in place. And so I just had her point both of her feet in the direction that she was turning, and when she pointed her feet in that direction, then her outside knee pushed into the tank and her hips then pointed in the direction that she was going and her shoulders pointed in the direction that she was going and her head was already there. And then she was able to soften her arms and make that turn because she was now supporting the motorcycle with her legs rather than being locked in in a death grip with her arms. And she was just shocked at how quickly she was able to go from struggling to being able to do full lock turns very slowly. So it's stuff like that just makes me smile and and just brings me so much joy. And that's one of the things that for male and female, something about having an instructor there to be able to spot what you're doing and say, there's some simple things here. If you do this, it's just much lesser learning curve. Right. I absolutely agree. And I I think, you know, that's the advantage to working with a professional coach is that, you know, we all have room to grow. I mean, I I just went to Jimmy Lewis training this past December, you know, um, and and I've gone to Shane Watts training and I've gone to, you know, I still continue to grow and improve. Um, but, But it's really important when an instructor can look at what you're doing and say, okay, this is what's most important for us to correct first. And if we take care of this, then everything else falls into place. And I will say this, you know, women develop confidence very differently from men. Um, Men, I think, have, I I call it a uh, conquer mentality. Ooh, I don't know what I'm doing, but damn it, I'm going to go do that. You know, I'm going to go ride that log. And they don't know, but somehow they fuddle their way through it. And then they develop confidence because they succeeded, right? A woman wants to have it broken down into bits and pieces. And she develops confidence when she knows, okay, that's part one, this is part two, this is part three. Oh, okay, I know something now. I have a skill. So so when you teach a woman, and, and I also find, honestly, Jim, I find this to be very helpful for the baby boomer crowd, male and female, because I don't know about you, but it hurts. You know, I, I'm 58 this year. And when I fall, I don't get up nearly as fast as I did when I was 16, right? Yeah, the ground so, is definitely getting harder for me as well. I think it's something with the sun. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the earth the earth is twisted yeah, on the axis. Yeah, something like that. I can't quite place it. Global warming, the ground is harder. <laughs> but, but, you know, nobody wants to fall. So if you can break it in tiny, in teeny little teachable pieces, develop that skill slowly and get rid of that grip it and rip it mentality then, you know, it's, it's a win-win situation for everyone. I really like the fact that you have all women instructors for this, but then you still have it open for males for the entire family. That's a great way to do it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, that 
one of the coolest things I experienced was a, a couple of years ago, I was riding single track down in Moab. And I think there, I was in a group of about five riders and three guys, two women. And we stopped because here was a woman coming down the trail. She was on like a, a KTM 300 and she had five little girls riding with her on everything from a 125 down to uh, an 80, you know. And I just thought it was the coolest thing that they were out there as a family vacationing. And, you know, we chatted with them. They were camping. They were there for a week. And they were having, you know, girl rides. They were having family rides. They were having guy rides. I mean, um, that was just really, really neat. And it is fun. It's a, it's a family thing, you know, and, um, and I, I just, I, I get a lot of joy when I see everyone f from the little ones on up to grandpa riding, you know? Well, this event in, in July of this year is going on in Granby, Colorado, and you're going to have a whole bunch of things going on here. It's, what is this? Four days. You've got, um, self-guided rides, geocache, run through some of what you, what you have planned. So uh, the first two days, Thursday and Friday, we will do our rider range training, and we're going to teach adventure essentials, dirt bike essentials, and then I've added the advanced uh, class backcountry discovery route essentials. Um, on Thursday and Friday, we will also have the classroom sessions. We will run uh, three classroom sessions simultaneously. So we'll do uh, three classes from uh, 3.30 till 4.30, and then three classes from 4.45 until 5.45. And uh, then we'll have catered meals. Uh, the geocache scavenger hunt, I, I have a, a route road book put together with GPS tracks of at least four different routes in Grand County. And Grand County is dual sport heaven. Uh, we have, there's so many Forestry Service County and, and uh, BLM dirt roads around here. And the cool thing is, is there's a major highway that runs, uh, Highway 40 runs all through the county. So I can give you a set of GPS tracks and you can do the full 240 mile loop. Or you can say, you know what, I'm good after 50 miles, jump on the highway and come back. So who do you think should come to this event? Should it be novice riders? Who would it be? You know, last year, we had a woman who had been on a dirt bike four times, and we had a woman who had been riding for 35 years, and everyone learned. We had men who, uh, who were experienced but had never actually taken formal classes, and the feedback that I got from everyone was that the fact that we were able to to decipher exactly what they needed uh, immediately to change, to have the most bang for their buck, to have the most improvement, uh, that that was powerful. And, you know, I would, I would invite anyone who has an interest in, uh, having fun. This is about, um, a safe place for families to gather. It's about, uh, a place where there aren't any egos, you know, Cletha Wallstrand, who's a retired attorney, said that everything was top-notch. There were no egos. There was no drama. A lot of fun uh, that it almost had a family environment. Um, so, you know, we're just looking to have a good time. Well, it sounds like a great event for 2017. And, of course, we'll put a link in the show notes to your website for that for yeah. people who are interested. Pat, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Jim. And I appreciate the phone call and the, the chance to share what ADV Woman is all about. And that was Pat Jakes from ADVWoman.com. Her rally is July 20th through 23rd, 2017. Drop by the website to check that out. Also afterwards, they're doing a women's only Colorado backcountry discovery route where they're going to do the trip and they're going to learn skills while doing the route. So that should be fun as well. Check it out. The link will also be in our show notes. Well, AeroStitch still runs the Ride More Guarantee, which is if you try any AeroStitch one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter classic riding suit for one month, and you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back and get a full refund. No questions asked. How can you ask for more than that? You, you, I mean, you have the chance to try the suit out, and they're so confident you're going to love it that they're going to give you your money back and not ask any questions if you don't like it. And if you get a chance, drop by their website, www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, that forward slash ARR lets them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. It'll also get you 10% off your first order or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. be visiting a couple of events this summer so if you're um, maybe in the northern hemisphere particularly in Canada we're going to be at a couple of events check out our website for that you'll find more information coming up in the next few weeks on www.adventureriderradio.com the other thing is we are now signed up for patrons so if you ever thought about doing a, a monthly donation you can do anything from you know a dollar on up um, every month to help make the show work we would really appreciate it if you drop by and check it out just drop by our website click on the donate button you'll see there's options there for um, PayPal, etc. But also the patron options, which are a little bit different. You can go over to the patron page, check it out and have a look. And we would certainly appreciate it if you would. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, 
that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Now, there's some things you can do to help us out. If you'd like, you can drop by our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. That also helps. But the other thing I was thinking of is dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Donate button. Consider a donation. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you as our appreciation uh, back to you. And anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show, which you can just zip on over to our website and click on the Raw show, and you can have a listen to see what that sounds like right there. But also... We have this patron thing we've signed up for, which allows for monthly donations. It can be a huge deal for us here at Adventure Rider Radio. Um, we are certainly need, in need of the, the cash influx from something like that. So if you're into it, uh, you know, drop by, check it out. If you like what we're offering, you like what we're doing, you want to help out, great. You don't have to, though. You can still listen to all the episodes for free. They're always going to be free. Oh, and mentioning Raw reminds me, Raw is a separate show. It's a different show than this, but you have to subscribe separately. Again, free. You can just go and click on it and listen to it. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and just click on the Raw button. It'll take you to the Raw show. You can see all the notes. It's roundtable discussions with travelers. A lot of great travel information in there. Thanks very much for listening. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. I'm Elizabeth Martin. I'm Brody Barker. I'm Sonia Martin. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Radio.